0: Welcome to On the Dresser. Sex, sex queers, sex, queers politics. politics. What's on your dresser? Our conversations are led by sex workers, queer people, and sex educators. We call what we do titillation. We use explicit language and discuss topics that may not be a good fit for all listeners. But if you like honest, frank talk about gender, sexuality, and bodies, if you know it's all political but you're not always sure what to do about it, well, we're here for you. It's Monday, April 29th, 2019, and we are approximately a year out from the implementation of SESCA-FOSTA, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, which was combined with the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which was passed last year. I'm Vanessa Carlisle, and I am with.
1: I'm Lauren Kylie,
2: And I'm Danny Cruz.
0: Um, we're the, on the dresser team trying to think about where we're at now, what has happened in the last year, what's happening right now, what has SESTA-FOSTA done to our lives and our communities, and how are we seeing sex workers and movement for sex worker rights and dignity happening right
1: now? What's going on? There's been a lot in the news. and. I think it's impossible in general to parse out specifically what shitty stuff in the news is SESTA-FOSTA responsible for, what shitty stuff is other forms of oppression against sex workers responsible for, how does racism and classism, transphobia play into all of this, and and then, of course... are sort of larger narrative in the U.S. right now, the larger political narrative of increased xenophobia and violence and fascist policies. Um, it's all sort of happening at the same time.
3: The first challenge to Foster Sesta was brought in June of 2018. The plaintiffs include Woodhall Freedom Foundation, Human Rights Watch, the Internet Archive, massage therapist Eric Kozik, and SWAT Behind Bar's lead organizer Alex Andrews. A judge dismissed the case last summer, citing a lack of standing. That's because the plaintiffs have only lost platforms and have self-censored. They've not been prosecuted under the law. According to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who is providing co-counsel for the case, an appeal has been filed. The new law has yet to be used directly to prosecute any websites or individuals for facilitating prostitution or human trafficking but it has caused chaos on the internet. In an amicus brief filed for the challenge, the Center for Democracy and Technology says, quote, for as long as lawmakers have tried to censor constitutionally protected speech online, courts have stood ready to apply the First Amendment to reject their efforts. It already has resulted in chilling lawful, even desirable speech about prostitution and sex work, end quote. In my view, it's gone further than that.
1: It's, you know, when we first asked, what what does it look like and where are things going? And um, my, my first response when we first asked that question was, it sucks and the internet sucks and it's getting more boring and being a sex worker on the internet is getting challenging in new ways. Uh, focusing on the news also means focusing on what's happening in public because I think a lot of the flip side that we're seeing, a lot of the resistance, a lot of the the sex workers showing compassion and mobilization and organizing isn't happening in public because we can't do it in public.
2: Yeah. It's easy to feel a, like a pile on uh, of all these things right now. Like Uh, I'm thinking, you know, the um, raids on massage parlors coupled with like increased sting activities, more and more attention to uh, legal forms of sex work. And we've talked about on the show before of like legal forms of sex work being in conversation with illegal forms and one having to like disprove the other or prove that they're not in any way illegal. Um, Like it it seems like a lot. And it's hard to parse out because it seems to be coming from all sides, not just like the online SESTA-FOSTA thing, but um, the bipartisan bill to go after bank accounts of people in the sex trade or uh, adjacent to the sex trade is gaining momentum. It, does not, it seems to not end right now, and it's, it's really easy to, to feel a sense of hopelessness. It's, that's a thing that a lot of people I know have been messaging me um, on the sly on Twitter DM is like this feeling of just like hopelessness. And it's it's been very hard in the last last year to like find silver lining.
1: Uh, and if I can jump in there, just combine it combining what we were saying in terms of the larger political narrative, it, this is also happening sort of separate from that. The bill you just mentioned, the End Banking for Sex Traffickers Act is Bipartisan and the two sponsors of that bill are Marco Rubio and presidential candidate hopeful Elizabeth Warren, who is otherwise one of the more progressive candidates coming out of this mess of people in the Democratic Party. So there's also this raging political debate that has pretty much excluded sex workers from the start in terms of picking a Democratic presidential candidate because they mostly, they have mostly attacked our communities in fairly direct ways or are attacking in fairly direct ways. Yeah, you're, of
0: course, I think, nodding also to Kamala Harris, right, who had mm-hmm. a bunch of headlines recently by saying, well, people credited her with saying that sex work should be decriminalized, which was not at all what she was saying. She was actually advocating for the kind of um, criminalization that is about the clients, right? Like criminalize the clients, um, don't criminalize the workers. But at the same time, as a prosecutor, like she definitely has been on the side of criminalizing the workers, like up until, you know, yesterday. So what does it mean for the rhetoric to be something that a politician can, can like mobilize news, a news cycle around the rhetoric of decriminalization without actually meaning decriminalization at all, without actually having any real contact with sex workers or, um, or people who are involved in the industry who've been advocating for decriminalization. So there's Again, that that sense of hopelessness, I think, comes from also just realizing that no matter what we're looking at, we're looking at misrepresentation or lack of representation of of our real lived experience and um, and that the people who are getting to speak on these issues are not people who are um, like in the, you know, kind of
1: front lines of the fight doing the work. I just... Also, want to put on record that when she says decriminalize the workers, what the language she's using is decriminalize these women. There was one interview in particular in which she managed to say these women in just the most alienating, condescending tone. She looked like she was going to throw up.
0: (laughs) She really did. I mean, it was memeable. Like, it's all over the internet, right? These women. (laughs)
1: In in this corner of sex work activist internet, it was was pretty funny.
0: And then we have things that are, you know, I think to people outside of the sex industry unrelated, but to us all feel of of a piece in a certain way. Where like, you know, this year we saw Ed Buck not get arrested after after a second black man died in his home of, uh, methamphetamine overdose. And he's got this incredible, like block of people who have stories about, um, his predatory behavior, his, um, you know, his wanting to push people beyond their limits, that being his kink. I mean, the fact that his first victim, Jamel Moore was, it's what it seems like is like a a kind of. Maybe sex worker, maybe not that, maybe that's not how he would have identified himself. But, but that his, you know, the the sex workers being disposable victims or, or not considered real victims. We just had a number of cases this year that felt like these kind of, how do I describe them? Like the pain of the sex working community was not that issue for the media Um, and the fact that sex workers were involved as victims was more sensation than it was um, motivation for policy change or any other kind of activism and that's really hard to witness.
1: One thing that was complicated with the Ed Buck and Jamel Moore situation in terms of coming at it as sex work activists is One, the victims have both been black men who have sex with men, which is not traditionally a population sex work activists have been particularly close with in the United States. And the question of essentially who qualifies as a sex worker, what is transactional, what is not transactional, what it like what is the difference between transactional and predatory, but more importantly for me in this story, in terms of coming at it from a sense of sex workers and solidarity and where I feel the sex work community could have a very strong presence is people who identify as escorts and as sex workers have a history of reporting abuse, forced injection, Assault from Ed Buck, and those stories and resources were not listened to. He continued to have ads up on gay sex worker sites soliciting other people to come be a part of this. But a lot of that has been erased as if it's a completely separate issue.
2: And some of it's been erased just by like the people who are telling the story, like there's still this very palpable ick factor um, in, in some of this storytelling and reporting. A word that I used earlier was um, hopelessness. Um, and while that is true, like all these terrible stories feels hopeless, I do like kind of see a tipping point maybe like with the Robert Kraft story people are starting to very plainly see that law enforcement claims trafficking when there's no trafficking present. The officer who murdered Donna Dalton in Ohio, that vice unit was disbanded. Like, that person is going to trial. Like, there are these like tiny little specks um, all over like the sex worker news sphere of, is it gonna start to shift? are we at that point? Do we just need to keep pushing? Do we just need to keep being vocal? And, and the only answer I come up with is yes. Like for every time I've given myself an ulcer on Twitter or on social media or just talking with friends, being vocal and being loud about these things, like it, I am finally starting to feel like it's for something. Like the something is going to happen next. I don't know what yet, but it, something switching.
0: Yeah, I, I feel that. And I think that there's a, you know, any social movement has ebbs and flows. And we haven't seen a flow like this one since the 90s, in the sense that like, people are starting to remember that sex workers are actually a very large population <laughs> that are a, are a huge block of participants in civic, social, and economic life. And so Robert Kraft, who's a billionaire, gets caught on camera getting a Robin tug from somebody, and we're finally starting to see some people ask the question of like, okay, but what happened to her? Um, and I don't think that most of the news stories were able to answer that question because it being an active investigation that had the trafficking label at the beginning, but now we're seeing, oh actually no one got arrested for trafficking. And that that difference, that sort of confusion, I think people are starting to have to piece out, like, what does it mean, this, this trafficking label, if no one's getting arrested for trafficking, but people are getting arrested for prostitution and solicitation. Now they're starting to put that together with all of these reports we've had coming in for so many years about how the criminalization of sex work is what harms sex workers. So yeah, I do see a wave happening of like people trying to do more uh, self-education and have more understanding. The issue is, can we get policies in place and can we have cultural change that's happening such that people's lives aren't getting ended early, right? And, and so I think SB 233, which is a bill that's up in California, is one of these little little shifts that you know that is part of this larger wave of conversations about decriminalization, conversations about stigma. Um, so SB two thirty three is a bill that would um, provide a little bit of uh, immunity for sex workers who are victims of crime who want to report those crimes. So currently, a lot of sex workers don't report crimes against them because. They're afraid that they'll get arrested for prostitution or solicitation when they when they make their report and it's true they do it's not an unfounded fear it's actually a common practice so SB 233 would decriminalize the carrying of condoms which is also an important step for us like we can have more than three condoms in our bag that's responsible adult life that's not a crime uh, and that people who are um going to report a crime to the police would not then be would not have to fear that the police are going to just turn around and arrest them for prostitution. I think it's an important bill. I think it's the kind of bill that addresses the real concerns of criminalization, but of course, who knows who who it's going to protect and who it's not and what its actual effects are going to be. We don't know, but it is. The first time, like Scott Wiener's behind the bill, and it's the first time that we've, I think, seen this much action towards decriminalizing sex workers in the face of, you know, how how much harm they suffer at the hands of the police.
2: Yeah, and there's the uh, bill in Rhode Island that Coyote Rhode Island, call off your old tired ethics, um, is uh, helping write that would study the effects of criminalization in Rhode Island. So there's these like small little chipaways state to state on criminalization. I just like, you know, just hold hope that, you know, something gets seen through and dialogues begin to shift.
1: And I I think you're right in that we are reaching some sort of changing point. We've been tracking the way a lot of this language has been changing, the way that anti-trafficking movement has been co-opting the language of decriminalization is what we've been seeing. But we've also been seeing them have to answer some of these questions for the first time. We saw this partly in, in the Robert Kraft case, where they were engaging with sex workers on Twitter. And one of the big questions was not just what happened to these women working in this massage parlor, but also what does happen when there are actual victims of human trafficking because it looks like you're just giving them a backpack with flip-flops which was one of the key images from that raid and I I live in Florida now and most of Florida lives in flip-flops and it still has not been in any of the essential tools to combat human trafficking in terms of its actual efficacy. But along with the very real policy changes, there's also a shift in that I've never seen reporters talk to sex workers before about a case like this. I've never seen them try to reach out. I've never known organizations of massage workers to send them to until now. There's still a very long way to go, and I still have a lot of feelings about how that story has been reported. But it had, I I don't know by what measure this is, but it didn't make me as mad as I thought it would, as consistently as I thought it would. I think there is some incremental progress being made that people are being slightly less infuriating on. Sort of in a day-to-day conversational basis, at least, or at least I really hope so. And I think we do need to keep pushing, keep being loud, keep showing up, keep showing up for each other, keep keep looking out for our communities, our queer communities, our sex working communities, our trans communities. Some some good things are happening, and those are those are things we should keep fighting for. One thing that I really
0: noticed is how uh how really much more open sex workers in my life have been with each other about how they're handling their business. Um, so I feel like before Sesta Fosta, we had a lot more secretive kind of, you know, quietly competitive stuff going on. And I'm finding that sex workers in my life are a lot more likely to share information about where their ads are doing well, um, how much they're charging people for stuff. Um, there's, a, there's a greater sense of solidarity around, like, increase your rates, like, here's a good place to see people, here's a bad place to see people. Um, just not, and sex workers, I think, have historically been people who create cultures of care and communities of care in these, you know, sort of insular ways but this is something broader. This is something larger where I, you know, I meet a sex worker that I don't know. And like within a few minutes, we're talking about rates and we're talking about advertisement because getting like our basic needs met uh, in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA has been harder. And we're all actually trying to help each other with that more. Um, So that's been really interesting, not just seeing, more people identify as a sex worker and come forward to do organizing, which I know is happening that, you know, more people who are strippers and cameras are starting to be like, fine, okay, I'm a sex worker and I need to deal with this. Um, you know, the hierarchy is getting a little bit shaken by all of this in a way that seems really good overall. Um, but also just interpersonally that I'm seeing more care, more, you know, more sense of like, are you getting what you need? How can we, how can we make sure that people are getting their needs met? Um, which is, which is a requirement right now. You know, I mean, I, I'm,
2: I've,
0: I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to start complaining about what's going on online, but it's hard. It's hard to get new clients right now. I think that, I think it's pretty safe to say that across the board, that it's tougher to get new clients for all of us.
1: And I can actually at, at some point I probably will go into the very technical real reasons that that is happening and the ways in which the sex industry is blocked from digital marketing resources that the non-sex working community has access to we we straight up use the internet differently we are blocked from words from resources from advertisements in, in in case you can't tell, I've done some digital marketing in non-sex work-related industries. And it's incredibly frustrating to see the the limits that are that we're already working under even before Sesta Fosta. But so much of this is coming from so many directions. Some of it's coming from the state, some of it's coming from credit card companies. And some of it is coming from clients who are scared, who have a harder time finding a sex worker, who have a harder time navigating what it is they want and how to find that. It it has been deliberately made more difficult, and we are feeling the effects of that.
2: In that vein of increased solidarity, um, one of the more important things that a friend of mine who's also a sex worker, um, one of the things that he has done for me this year was to remind me that it's important that I'm here and that it's important that we, we kind of all stick together and that we all be here. So um, kind of just want to put out to the world, if you know, any sex workers that are hearing my voice right now in this podcast, like, you're important and you being here matters. I just really want to share that.
1: Made me cry. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: I think that's a good I think that's a good place to wrap. I I feel that way too. I feel like, you know, I I just want my sex worker network and family and friend group to continue to grow and to continue to build in um in depth and care because we are our we are our best resource. So, um, you know, for our sex worker listeners, we, we love you. We're here for you on the dresser at gmail.com and, uh, for our non-sex worker listeners, thank you for participating in this conversation and for self-educating about what this community is experiencing right now. It's, um, it's important. We're, we're, we're just, we're just the beginning of this like much larger thing that's going to start touching non-sex workers imminently so we are all kind of in this together in that way
3: what are you seeing do you have anything to add to our discussion about the last year living under foster sesta are you seeing it from a different perspective did we miss something or get it wrong we love hearing from you Write us or email us a voicemail on the dresser at protonmail.com. Introduce yourself in the message and we'll share some of your thoughts on the dresser soon. You can find past episodes of On the Dresser on SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Apple Podcasts. Uh, while you're there, please rate, review, and
2: subscribe. It really helps a lot.
0: If you'd like to support this grassroots volunteer effort in Queer Sex Worker Media, head over to on the com and hit our donate button. We don't want to volunteer forever.
1: You can find us on Twitter at OntheDresser. On the Dresser is produced by me, Lauren Kiley, Dr. Vanessa Carlisle, Danny Cruz. All of our music is by Lou Gomez. Alright, thanks on the dresser listeners. We'll catch you next time. All power
3: to the people. All pleasure to the people. Good night and good Good fuck.